The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, number 129, for November 26, 2007. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. And you know what? I ran a different intro than I thought I did. How are you, John? I was going to say that, that that was a little different. Um, it was a little different. I'm just trying to get back in the swing of things, man. I mean, I took, uh, you know, I did the five-day weekend, as did uh, probably many people. Um, I didn't do any of the annoying Black Friday stuff, but I did go to a wedding. Our, our friend Bob got uh, hitched. Congrats, Bob. Lots. So that was a uh, that was cool. And actually, I ran, well, one of the, one of the guys who used to be part of the crowd. He's also in New York, but he's a real broadcaster, like a radio broadcaster guy. So his setup puts even your setup to shame. Oh, I I'm think. sure it does. I'm sure it he's does. He's like a radio broadcast guy. <laughs> so, anyways, hi Jay, if you're listening to this, I I gave him the URL. So, anyways, awesome. yeah, it was a good a good rest. But uh, yeah, we got to get back to uh, you know answering your questions and uh, solving your problems and all of that. And sharing all your tips. That's right. I'm Dave Hamilton. Of course, this is uh, John Braun on the other end of the line here. And mm-hmm. uh, t- yeah, today's show, we've got uh, yet another fix for the open with menu. We're talking about sharing calendars. Uh, we do potentially have an answer about wirelessly updating the iPod touch and a whole lot more. And if you want to send in your tips or questions, send them to uh, feedback at MacGeekGab.com. We can take email or audio there. Uh, and then you can you can Skype it in, of course, to MacGeekGab. And lastly, you can phone it in if you if you're so inclined. 206-666-GEEK, which is John? 4335. That's right. So, you know, Wednesday it was, of course, the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, I had planned to work about a half day and uh, came down to put the, you know, wake up the kids and, you know, get the family going and put the kids on the bus. And we have the iMac G5 over in the house. And I hear it, you know, as I walk down the stairs, the fan on it is just cooking. I'm thinking, oh, what the heck is going on? And uh, and so I, I go over to it, and sure enough, the fan's going at full tilt. The, the, oh. power, the power light's on, but nothing's happening. You know, tried to wake it up, nothing. So I held the power button in for 10 seconds. Down went the machine. I let it cool for a couple minutes. Went to turn it back on. It turned on. Nothing. No image on the screen, no startup chime. And then after a couple of seconds, the fans fired back up again. Oh, no. So I turned it off, made the kids breakfast, you know, figured maybe it overheated throughout the night. Something, some sensor tripped and, you know, it's going to do that. So, okay, Uh, go to start it up again. Nothing. Shut it down. Try it again. And it made it. It started up. Hmm. Okay. I shut Mm -hmm. it down, you know, from within uh, the Mac OS, went to start it. Same problem. No go. Okay, so I cracked open the iMac. There's four lights inside in the uh, in the old iMac G5s. There's four lights in there that'll tell you uh, what's going on in terms of power, how how far along it's getting. And uh, and so I opened it up and it uh, it had the first light would come on and then the second light. And then the third, I think, tells you that it's sending video. And that came on once for me in about four boots. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, the day before I got family coming in, we were going to use the computer. There's no, I'm going to have to, you know, go and try and, you know, throw my weight around at Mac edge and see if those guys will, you know, give me some sort of priority. Cause it, you know, I have to pull the, do you know who I am card and that sort of thing. And yeah, I hate doing that. And cause especially those guys, they're really nice guys. And uh, so I'm scratching my head. And then on the motherboard, John, I saw something now 
Do you want to know what it was? I'm going to let you guess what it was. On the motherboard. On the motherboard. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw something and, uh, and, and chased down a hunch. And any guesses, John? No. It, I wouldn't have a guess if I hadn't seen it either. Remember in the old days when a computer would start acting funky and the first thing you would do was replace the CMOS battery. Of course, now CMOS being a Windows term, but uh, you, you replace the battery. And there was one of those CR2032 batteries. And I thought back to the, that time you were up here about a year and a half ago and we bought a bunch of extra batteries for the kids' Tamagotchis. And I thought, you know, I've got one of those 2032s right here in the kitchen. So I pulled one out, popped the battery out of the iMac, popped the new one in, tried it, tested it, booted right up, buttoned the machine up. It's been working fine ever since. Huh. Nowhere on the on Apple's site. I was searching for this on the site, trying to think, you know, is there some reset button? And there was, but it didn't do anything. You know, is there anything? Nowhere on the site did it say, try and replace the battery. So I wonder how many times does somebody bring a machine into Apple or, you know, one of the authorized service partners and uh, just for a battery replacement? Cause they don't know any better. I don't know. You know, I knew that one. Did you? Well, no, we, we've talked about it in past shows, yeah. but, but it was the, the, the flat battery you're talking about. They used to have this chunky little, I think it was a 3.6 volt lithium, almost like an end cell battery right. that size. On a lot of the older Macs, and I remember the problem was different, though, in that typically you wouldn't be able to power up those computers because the battery powered the circuit that detected whether you press the software key on the keyboard to turn it on. And for the Macs that that was the only way to turn them on, all of a sudden you wouldn't be able to turn them on. Yeah. So I imagine what was happening in your case, it was either the NVRAM, PRAM, whatever you want to call that area of memory, right. was getting all confused. And, for example, the area that says, how fast should I run the fans was all set to the maximum. <laughs> yeah, or it, it or the I, my guess is that the fans, if they don't get a signal otherwise, will go to the maximum, presumably to save the machine as best they can if there's some malfunction. You know, and I have seen that actually after sometimes like installing firmware updates when you do an intermittent when you do an incremental reboot. So sometimes it takes a couple of reboots. I've had cases where I reboot the machine after a firmware update and the fans are blasting. Right. Like it's scary. Like especially on this machine, I think this machine has eight fans when they're all on. It's like. You can hear it from very far away. So, uh, but that's a good catch. Now, I thought we, uh, I'll look in my, my notes here, but I did post a few, uh, several shows ago, yeah. a list of machines that had replaceable batteries. And I want to see if, uh, maybe if you had that, I, I thought I saw the, it's an iMac G5, yeah, right? It definitely has a replaceable battery. I can, I can attest to that yeah. firsthand. Yeah. Without question. So if you, if you stumbled across that article, then you would have known, but otherwise, yeah, it's like a. Yeah, I mean, the symptoms are, are very uh, random, they sounded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we will move uh, from that little story with a tip buried in to a, a, a more transparent tip. Hi, guys. Happy holidays. This is Brian from Cleveland. And uh, a while back, I think it was maybe a month or two ago, you had a question from a listener about uh, their, uh, if you use the open with function when you right click or control click on an icon so that the program the file opens with something other than the default using the open width the, uh, the list of potential applications was populated with multiple copies of the same application and or even possibly incorrect applications or applications that you didn't have any longer and I found uh, the way to fix that problem and I uh, think this is pretty handy and I went ahead and tested it on my computer and it works great uh, you look for in your home folder, in the preferences folder, in your library folder, you look for the uh, preference list 
for uh, launch services. I believe it's uh, com.apple.launchservices.plist. Delete that file, and then uh, the next time you log in, your uh, computer will have to regenerate that list, and it'll get rid of anything that no longer applies, and it'll get rid of all the uh, multiple. So I just wanted to pass that along. Uh, happy holidays, and if you need to reach me, I'll... Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll cut it there. So, yeah, thoughts on that, John? Here's the weird thing. Um, so, yeah, if you look in that file, you'll get, you'll get an inkling of how the open with menu works. Um, so the one thing I'd suggest is, you know, if you have the multiples, I mean, make sure that the apps aren't there. Some, now, usually this happens between, like, if you have a classic and a regular version of an app. I've, I've seen them show up twice. Other than that, yeah, they should, that should never happen. But here was the weird thing that happened to me. Let me tell you about it. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, tell us all. If I just, so I found the file, and, and on one of my machines... I do not have the property list editor, which which is only installed if you install the developer tools, which is on your uh, OS disk. Uh, it's usually an optional install because it's uh, it's pretty hefty, okay. you know, Xcode and all of that stuff in there. But um, so when I tried to launch it, it said, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Why don't you tell me? And I'm like, oh, that's weird. But when I found the file in Spotlight, what it did is when I highlighted the file in Spotlight and launched it, it launched Omni Outliner, which they toss on several um, you know, versions yeah. of Mac as a demo and stuff like that. And it's like, so here's my head scratcher, kind of a mini listener challenge is why did that work? There's the, obviously a different mechanism in place to launch it because the normal one said, I don't know what this file is. So yeah. kind of weird. I just thought it was, a, it was just unusual. It, it was a pleasant surprise, but why doesn't it work everywhere? So that's a good question. I, I would have assumed that spotlight would use, what the rest of the OS would use. So yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. So maybe, and maybe if somebody out there knows, maybe spotlight uses it in a different way. It just seems strange that they would have the same functionality duplicated or the same database duplicated, if you will. Yeah. But clearing a P list file is, um, you know, of course, make a backup because it may be yes. a P-list file that has stuff that cannot be recreated. That's the only caveat I would, I would give to this. So this sounds like one, Apparently, you can safely get rid of it, and it recreates it in a in a proper state. So, yeah. um, yeah, make a backup, kids. Greg writes in. Back when we were Windows based, my wife and I used Google Calendars. She subscribes to calendars I keep on my account for the family, school, soccer, etc., thus allowing us each to make changes as needed. Now that we have an iMac, loving it, by the way, I'd like to use iCal instead of webbing into Google Space. However, we must have the ability for the two of us to access, change the calendars. Additionally, I would like to retain the ability to access calendar info while I'm away from my iMac uh, for office or travel purposes. I don't see a way in iCal to access another user's calendars on the same machine. A solution posted online and elsewhere points to solutions for multiple Macs on a local network, but nothing for a single machine. So far, I've purchased Spanning Sync and have set it up to sync my Google calendars to my local iCal calendars. That works great for me alone. I'm at a loss as to what to do for my wife. I thought Spanning Sync might be the way to go, but it appears to be tied to my account and I don't want to purchase another license for her. I guess I could continue to use Google, but it seems unspousingly of me to keep iCal all to myself. Being new to OS X, I'm not sure if moving the iCal directories files from my account to some central location and then setting up links for it to me and my wife would work. Any ideas? Uh, wow, that's that's a loaded question. Uh, it will... I, the, and iCal has no way of doing this out of the box. You can share calendars with others in a read-only format. You can write to them one write, read many, okay? Uh, but there is no way to, to have a calendar shared 
where everyone can collaborate, if you will. Um, moving the iCal files somewhere else, well, that would work in theory, but, it, but in a very unsupported way. You'd have to make sure, I would definitely turn off fast user switching, and that way you could only have one user logged in at a time, and that actually should potentially allow that to work, but, uh, you know, very untested, make sure you make backups, uh, that sort of thing. Hmm. I, iCal... Oh, by replicating the, uh, the iCal folder, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, or users? take the, the ICS files, right? And doesn't iCal just save stuff as ICS files? And uh, if you put those in a shared location, a common location, and made aliases to them, uh, you could, in theory, um, have one calendar that, that two different users at two different times could access. Uh, but again, I, you know, that, that's, that, that's a very tenuous solution at best. Uh, Google Calendar, frankly, is probably the best solution uh, if you want something free. I am a big fan of now up to date and contact, although that software is getting a bit long in the tooth. Hopefully something new will be out from them soon. Uh, they, that does come with a calendar server that allows you to do everything you want to do here. But uh, again, it's been probably six months since it's even seen a point update. Uh, and they've been talking about there's stuff on their website about a new new product called Nighthawk and the release schedule of that is unknown. So uh, I don't know of any other calendars for OS 10 that really would do this sort of stuff. If if you do, John, or or, or if any of you folks no, out there. Do. And, and just to reiterate, I've looked through it. iCal definitely does have you can publish either a calendar to .Mac or a private server. Uh, from what I can see, that's both both using the, the web dev protocol, but it is, as we mentioned, uh, one person controls it. Everybody else can subscribe, and that's also called pub, sub, or publish, subscribe, right. is it the way the iCal does it. But it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't allow a high level of collaboration, unfortunately. So uh, now, Dave, you did find a, uh, I guess there is a uh, standard for this sort of uh, yeah. uh, activity. Yeah, it Leopard Leopard server supports or uh, includes what's called a CalDAV server, and, and iCal uh, will attach to this. I don't have any experience with it as of yet, uh, and it was unclear. Although I'm going to assume that it actually may, in fact, include this functionality, it, being that it's a uh, kind of an, a standard protocol. I would have to assume that they would have built in more collaboration features than we get with uh, with iCal out of the box. So perhaps either setting up a leopard server with a caldav server or going out and getting an open source caldav server or or even attaching to some third parties uh, if somebody's out there running a caldav server and and perhaps selling space on it like people do on exchange servers and that sort of thing and frankly actually that's another way right use entourage and uh and buy an account on a on a hosted exchange server and and do that although entourage isn't cheap right <laughs> I got, I'm with you. <laughs> All right. We will, uh, we will move on. If anybody has any ideas there, we'd love to hear them. Hi, John and Dave. This is Jerry from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Long-time avid listener, first-time caller. I manage a small office, uh, five Macintoshes, running Tiger now. I have two questions about Leopard and FileMaker. Uh, first, should I install Leopard on all the machines at once? Does it matter? And second, is Time Machine the best backup method for a small office? Uh, each user on our network opens and closes uh, large FileMaker databases all day long, and I'm wondering if Time Machine adds a copy every time. Uh, I want to make sure I don't get caught out of hard drive space. Love the show. Keep up the good work. All right. 
Uh, you want to take this one, John, or you want me to run with it? Uh, well, we had a couple of questions here. I guess the uh, one was a uh, uh, upgrade question, right? Yeah. Uh, my personal, uh, I'll, I'll touch on both of them a little bit. Uh, but first off, with upgrading, I would not upgrade everybody all at once. No. Especially with the young nature of Leopard. I mean, you know, a lot of people work very hard on it, but it's, uh, there are bugs. There are things that don't work. Um, you know, I haven't had any catastrophic failures on my G5, but there are things that act kind of weird because people are working on updates. So, so I would say uh, find a machine, back it up. Um, and make it a test machine just to see your comfort level because it's not just going to be FileMaker. Uh, the one would assume that Apple's own application, you know, a uh, you know Apple-centric app like that would be up to date, right? Um, but it wasn't when Leopard was released. Just FYI. Oh, it was not okay. No, now, you're the FileMaker geek. I'm yeah. not. So, oh well, that's odd. Okay, yeah. but hey, some of these changes. I mean, yeah, the 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 changes to the plumbing may require more more uh, work than they thought. But anyways. Um, and then Time Machine, and you know, this isn't just Time Machine, but the, the, the thing is, Time Machine, like many backup applications, um, in my experience, the thing is, they can only tell if a file has changed. They can't tell what within a file has changed. That, uh, my suggestion for something like that would be to take a different approach. But I, I personally have not seen a backup solution that is smart enough to take the delta between two files. At most, they can do an incremental backup saying, okay, of this big bunch of files which have changed, oh, let me update that one. <clears throat> I don't know if you have a different experience with that, Dave. Yeah, it, no, there, there really isn't. Uh, FileMaker does, if you're running a FileMaker server, it has its own automated backup uh, functionality, but even that is just making a copy of the file. the The good thing is, is it can make a copy of the file while it's being uh, while it's being served. So uh, it it's not a bad thing. And then you can take those and back them up. <clears throat> uh, Time machine it, again, it, just as as Jerry and, and and John stated, it will continue making copies even if if one change is made to the file i think even if you open the file with filemaker that's enough to make a change to it that the time machine would then go ahead and grab the whole thing again um time machine is relatively smart but you don't have a whole lot of control over how far back it goes uh specifically you can you can set how much disk space it it has available and and then it kind of goes on its own from there if you want to use something a little more robust, there's, you know, e retrospect from from EMC, formerly from Dance, uh, Data Backup Plus, I think is what it is from ProSoft. Either one of those gives you far more control than than Time Machine currently does just because the, the UI for Time Machine is is so limited. Uh, and I think that's it was engineered that way. So, yeah. So in that case, some of the things that could help you due to the potentially large nature of the backup. So one is that a lot of products like retrospect support compression. So, and, and especially for some files like database files, there may be, um, you know, some redundancy in there. So uh, that could certainly help. Yep. All right. Uh, you know, I, I, I was looking today online, John, and I think we've only got one or two rooms left at the, uh, at the hotel Milano, which is the, uh, the, the hotel that we worked uh, with through IDG to, secure some rooms for Macworld Expo. Uh, it's possible that by, by the time you hear this, those rooms will be gone. Feel free to check, but we've got a, a $5 a night discount available to all TMO readers if they're still available. Uh, and we put a link in the show notes to that. And then I'll take that opportunity to jump into our first sponsor for the night, because if they're not available, or if you need airfare or cars or anything else, Harmon E Travel. Now that's Harmon-E-Travel.com uh, is an online travel service it's actually run by uh, a, a 
it's a small business. These are friends of, of the, the website we, and, and, of, and of the podcast. We've gone ahead and, and booked a couple of our flight reservations through this. The system works great. And oftentimes, they're able to get prices that are actually better than some of the big boys. They ask and we ask that if you're going to go ahead and book some flights, try Harmon E-Travel. That's Harmon-E-Travel.com and see if they've got a better price. Go ahead and book through them. Everybody appreciates it. Uh, they can, you can also sign up for their weekly deals and steals newsletter, which will uh, come out, I think, every Wednesday. And that uh, alerts you to all kinds of flights, rental cars, cruise deals, all kinds of different things that, uh, that would happen to uh, be priced very well that week. Again, that's Harmon-E-Travel.com. And with that, we'll move on to Chris. Uh, Chris says, I have a spare G4 Mac mini running 10.4. I want to use as a FileMaker and web server, mostly for my own use. I want to get a couple of FileMaker databases in my personal website while I'm at work. I was thinking of using dynamic DNS, which I've used before and my router supports, but I, as I really have no idea the risks of using it, I've always chickened out and switched it off. I have to leave the machine logged in so FileMaker can run. So am I going to be safe enough if I leave the server logged into a non-admin account, admin account and keep its firewall switched on with everything blocked except for the ports for the web server and FileMaker? Or am I opening up myself to a whole world of hurt by doing this? Thanks for your help. Okay. Uh, so Chris refers to something called dynamic DNS, which, believe it or not, is actually something I've wanted to talk about here on the show for a while because it's actually a very cool thing. Most of us are on home accounts with either our DSL or cable provider and as such don't have dedicated IP addresses. Now, as many of us have found, those IP addresses tend not to change a whole lot if you, uh, especially if you have a router that's just on all the time, but it is possible that they can change and, uh, and you don't want to just rely on having an IP address out. So uh, there are services out there and you can get, there's a bunch of them, DynDNS.org, DynIP.com, EasyDNS.com, and there's others. Uh, and what you do is you go and you sign up for an account with these, and, you, in, and many of them are free, some of them are not. But I'm, I'm certain that DynDNS.org allows a free account, and then you can actually add features. But for what Chris is talking about doing, you can do it for free. And you sign up for an account, and you assign it a name. For example, let's say I went and signed up with DynDNS, and I call my account DaveHamilton.DynDNS.org. That's not me, but uh, maybe somebody, I don't know. But, but just for example. And then I run a little client, again, either on my router if my router supports it, or on a Mac even behind my router. And it goes and updates the DynDNS server regularly so that anytime me or anyone else in the world tries to go to DaveHamilton.DynDNS.org, it automatically redirects them. It does the DNS lookup and the DNS lookup resolves to whatever my current IP is. If my IP changes every hour, DynDNS will be updated every hour. And they've got a very, very short time to live on these DNS addresses. So it's updated. So it gets pushed out as soon as the address changes. It pushes it to the service then? Bingo. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it, within a minute of your address having changed and you being back online, of course, uh, the, the server will have it up to date. Nobody will cache it. It's set to be a very, very low, low uh, time to live. So it, and it works really, really well. So, you know, if you want to do a server from work, even if your IP doesn't change all that often, it's actually really handy to remember your DynDNS address, which is a, a name versus an IP address. Now, some of us are very good at remembering IPs, but yeah, you know, it's easier to remember DaveHamilton.DynDNS.org than 66.167.14.3. I mean, let's face it, right? So 
setting that up does work. Now, does it open you up? Does doing that open you up specifically to any additional attacks? And the answer is, well, not really. You've got anybody that knows your Dyn DNS address can get at you. But frankly, anybody that knows your IP address can get at you as well. And chances are people are going to know your IP range because you're part of an IP range that's assigned to a dynamic provider, be it cable modem, you know, DSL, satellite, whatever it is, although satellite actually gets a little bit different. Uh, but any any always on type of service and those get targeted anyway. Uh, yeah. So for all the script kiddies out there, here's a strategy to get started is get the IP ranges for all the major cable and DSL providers and just start scanning them and just just wait. You'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Should I have not? Oh, wait, the lawyers are. Uh, oh, no, they're good. No, no, we're, we, we provide <laughs> advice for everyone. Script kiddies all the way up. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. So, no, I really don't think that there's any real harm in assigning a, uh, a, a Dyn IP or, you know, Dyn DNS or any sort of dynamic IP uh, service to your IP. Now, that being said, by doing so, you're doing it for a reason. And, and in Chris's case, he's doing it so that he can keep his uh, FileMaker and web server turned on. Uh, web servers tend to be targeted pretty regularly. FileMaker services mm, tend not to just because it's it's not as common a service. More often than either of those, infinitely more often, are the Windows file sharing ports and uh, and Telnet, which uh, and SSH, because people are going to try and yeah. hack into systems. Uh, and AFS, I think Apple Apple file sharing. I, I guess to a degree, sure. Some, and, and definitely not as often because I used to set up a honeypot and and I would get way more hits for the Windows file sharing than the uh, Apple specific protocol. Right. So because um, it's common, usually not very well protected. Well, you're just going by the numbers. That's it. Yeah. So leaving your computer logged in or not, actually, frankly, the way the Mac OS works, there's not a whole lot of difference in the risk, whether you're you're logged in locally or not. Your machine is is going to answer requests no matter what. Now, of course, with FileMaker, unless you're running FileMaker server, you have to be logged in in order to run the FileMaker app to to allow connections to come in. But unless you have uh, remote access, i.e. VNC turned on, there's not a whole lot of difference risk-wise between being logged in and not being logged in. Uh, so I, I, think you're, I think you're safe either way, as safe either way. And, you know, just go into your uh, security, your firewall, or, or your uh, sharing preferences, rather, and, mm -hmm. and disable all the things that, that you don't think you need. And, uh, and I think that'll... I think that'll That'll take and, care of it. And I got the propeller beanie uh, extra bonus tip here. Go. Okay. Well, normally certain services are on certain ports. And as we know, the, the uh, you know, uh, starting uh, evildoers will look for certain things on certain ports. Well, here's a way to trick them. You put the services on a non-standard port. And some of you have seen this already. Like port 80 is where most web browsers go. Sometimes, for some reason, some web servers will be set up on port 88. And you'll see this because the web address has a colon 8080, which means go to this port instead. And if you have something like Little Snitch, it'll warn you saying, hey, I'm going to this port I'm not really not sure about. So, um, But if you're setting up a computer, now I do not leave my computer home computer on during the day because... Uh, you know, I, I got the uh, tinfoil hat going here. And, uh, well, I'd just rather not have the machine exposed. But if I did want to expose it, I would definitely, uh, on my router or Linksys or whatever you have there, put some wacky ports for the services just, just as a first line of defense. So uh, un unless people do a thorough port scan of your machine, they're not going to find this. So, you know, put it at a, at a weird high port. 
uh, yeah. would be one suggestion I've had. And, and I've done this in the past. And, uh, you know, it discourages the wannabes. But if somebody's really determined, yeah. They'll find it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, that, that brings up an interesting point here. Uh, not to go too deep, but if you are behind a router, which uh, Chris mentioned he was, you're going to need to tell your router to forward incoming requests on those ports to that specific Mac. Just leaving your Mac on won't work. Now, based on what Chris was saying, it sounds like he had already done that forwarding. But for any of you out there, portforward.com uh, will walk you through exactly what you need to tell your router uh, for the specific service oh. that you need. Okay, good point. Because yeah, like for example, my desktop machine has a static IP address. You definitely want to have a static IP address on your local right. network. And then yeah, you would do the routing typically in your router from your outside address and port to the inside address and port. And they have instructions on how to do that. And if you don't want to have to figure out how to change OS X's default web serving port from 80 to say 8080, as John pointed out, you can do that in your router. Go to your router and tell your router, look, from the outside, forward requests coming into port 8080 or you know whatever you want to this particular machine at port 80. And it will actually do the translation for you and save you a step in having to go and, uh, and muck with the uh, httpd.conf file and, and, and deal with all that on, on OS X. And with FileMaker, it's even, it can be even more tricky. So... Uh, okay. All right. We beat that horse up pretty good. I think so. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure how many people. <laughs> no, gonna... we do not support the beating of horses or any other animal. No, no. We apologize for all that beating. All right. Uh, we, we in a previous show, we were talking about, I guess it was just in the last show. We were talking about how to update an iPod from remote. And uh we had a listener who was going to be doing some traveling, didn't want to bring a laptop with them, but wanted to update his iPod uh, just at a, from a wireless connection at a, a web cafe. And we talked about a couple of solutions, but we had a lot of people write in and tell us uh, another solution. And, and I'm going to read an email from Baco here. But uh, but there were many, many folks, including Andreas and Patrick, that, that wrote. Well, in I think the initial request, though, was just if I go to a web cafe and I guess the concern was because you'd normally have to plug it in and there were all windows, you'd have to reform, which I think with all the current iPods, if they detect a different platform, they're going to say, hey, I want to reformat you, which is, is quite undesirable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, Baco wrote, he said, uh, uh, the best way to accomplish this is not by connecting it to the dirty PCs at the internet cafes and worse yet, formatting the iPod as FAT32. Instead, use the free public Wi-Fi by jailbreaking the iPod Touch. Now, of course, this wouldn't this solution would not work with any iPod other than well, the iPhone and the iPod Touch. Once you jailbreak it, and there's a link to go to jailbreak it, and I, and I know Michael Johnston already knows where this link is because, of course, he publishes uh, iPhoneAlley.com, so it's already there in your AAC feed. Uh, just add the multimedia add-on called MobileCast. Then you add the RSS feeds in the applications, and it manages, updates them whenever you're online. It does it using Wi-Fi or Edge. Obviously, podcasts are going to come down a whole lot faster via Wi-Fi. Uh, they don't appear in iTunes, but they do appear in the app itself, similar to how they would if you were listening in your browser. So you add the XML, i.e., you know, feed colon slash slash www.macgeekgab.com slash RSS slash MGG underscore MP3 dot XML and you're in business or MP3 underscore AAC if you want the AAC feed to appear on your iPod. Uh, and that should work great. We've got links in the show notes and, of course, links in the AAC that you already saw. And uh, and that should uh 
that should do it. In the follow-up realm, we actually heard back from Dee Dee. Hey, I wanted to leave a message for you guys again. This is Dee Dee Warren. You helped me on your show. I think it was number 128 regarding my Mac Pro that wouldn't shut down anymore after I installed Leopard. And one of the answers was correct. There was an external USB drive that was hanging up, took that thing out of the mix, and now it shuts down fine. If you remember, my second issue was that the closed parenthesis key decided to stop working <laughs> on my Kensington Pro keyboard. I tried find, to look for drivers and all that sort of thing, and I found some Kensington drivers, but when I tried to run them, it said I didn't have a Kensington keyboard attached, which is pretty funny because I'm looking at the keyboard, which is attached. So I went and got an Apple keyboard that I had, you know, a stock one, put it in, and it still doesn't recognize the closed parentheses key. So this is not a Kensington driver issue. I tried even another brand of, a, tried this Windows keyboard that I had, and nope, it still doesn't recognize the closed parentheses key. There's nothing mapped weird that I can see. Got any more ideas? This is just so strange. Okay, this is where you'll cut it off. But That is where I'll cut it off. And John, uh, you had the, you had the uh, the inspiration on this one, so take well, it. Well, uh, okay. Um, so first off, I'm I'm glad that for the first problem we hit upon it because you know if you make enough guesses, you're probably going to get one that's correct. But no, that that was great to hear that the uh, the drive was the, uh, the the cause of the hang up. Now, in this case, actually, Dee Dee implemented what I'd, I'd like to call good troubleshooting practices, and that she tried another keyboard. So it's not a hardware problem. Um, well, not a high-level hardware problem like that specific keyboard. Um, the only thing that came to me, and I've run into this with coworkers in the past, is that the setting that could have something to do with this is in an unexpected location. So if you go to System Preferences, and then here's where it gets weird. You would think you'd go to Keyboard and Mouse, but I'm going to tell you to go to International. And I've seen this. Now, specific, all of these settings have to do with, you know, the formats of dates and currency and stuff. But there's a part here which I think may be what is causing the problem here. And it's input menu. And basically, it's the type of keyboards or languages that your system recognizes and applies to certain input devices. As this says, input menus. And it says, select the keyboard layouts, input methods, and palettes for the input menu. Now, normally you don't see the input menu. If you do, you probably see a flag of the nation for the character set they're representing. So what I would I would suggest is to look in input menu and make sure that I'm assuming this is U.S., but it may not be. Um, oh, yeah, make sure point. only one is set. And if it's not, um, you know, select the keyboard for the country or the, the brand of Mac you have because they do have various different keyboards. Again, I'm going to assume uh, U.S. here. The, so that's an initial stab at it, which... Uh, I hope is closer. Um, I, yeah, I, I had a geekier one, but I I think that'll do it. I I can't imagine what else it could be. I mean, if it is, you know, beyond that, uh, and and we did before we before we recorded the show, we talked about a couple of other options that get really really geeky. Uh, you know, try another. But but the, the meta answer there is if this doesn't work, try another user account. See if if there's something there, and if not. You know, you could start digging around in the extensions and trying to fix all that stuff. But frankly, uh, if the input menu item isn't the magic fix and trying into the user account doesn't resolve it, 
then I, I think an archive and install is probably your best bet because you know it's not something in your user account at that point. You know it's beyond that. And an archive and install yep. is going to replace everything but and then slurp in all your settings and uh, and really, you know, it's it probably the though not the most elegant solution, certainly a, a guaranteed path to a solution with a, a, a time frame that that is predictable. If you start mm-hmm. troubleshooting, you know, and that that it I mean, this harkens back to my Windows days. But uh, there were I, I kind of had a, you know, a, my own gut meter and I'd, I'd start looking for a solution. And, you know, you, you know that it's out there and, you know, it's a tiny little needle in a big haystack. And I would give myself, you know, maybe an hour to find it. And if I couldn't, then I'd know, well, you know, within an hour and a half, I can have this machine totally reformatted, rebuilt and uh, and almost back up to speed. Whereas if I keep hunting, I could be an hour and a half. I could be three hours down the road and have no answer, you know, be exactly where I started from. So, you know, you got to kind of balance that and say, well, if I'm going to spend another couple hours on this, let's just archive and install. It's not a bad idea anyway, uh, because it because the, the the way Apple migrates user accounts works so well uh, that that would be that would be my advice. Now, to clarify one thing that you said, and then we'll, we'll move on here very quickly. Yeah. So you were talking about extensions. So what you were talking about is if you go to about this Mac, more info what that does is launch system profiler within the system profiler. There's a software category underneath that is an extensions category. And this is where some of the really low level guts of the OS live. And uh, based on what I know there, there is, and then it'll say extension name. It takes a while to scan the machine, but you may want to either look in this category for something that sounds like it's keyboard related, or I believe the one that by default handles the keyboard is something called IO USB HID, HID being human interface device driver um and it shows a version number and a date in the in the case of my the machine i'm looking at it's version 303 and the date is 10 10 07 so see if that's there or if it makes sense uh, you know the version it, it could be old or corrupted though uh you know if that's the case then dave's suggestion is very good you know rather than and, and yeah i wouldn't even want to try to figure out how to replace a damaged uh you know keyboard driver yeah <laughs> just start from scratch because there are probably other well it doesn't sound like you have any other woes but so yeah that's all, all i right. gotta say about that Okay, now that's good. Uh, our second sponsor for this show is Audio Engine at AudioEngineUSA.com. Uh, you've heard us talk about the Audio Engine speakers before. They now have two different models out. They've got the A5s, which for uh, US 349 are wireless ready in that you can plug an Airport Express right into the AC outlet on the back and then plug it into the Mini 8. These A5s are two separate speakers. They sit there what we would call bookshelf speakers. They sit on the desk or the bookshelf and they've got two drivers in each speaker cabinet and uh, pr- produce a really warm, rich sound. Uh, they've got a USB charge port on the top along with another audio input. So if you want to just lay your iPod on top, it fits just fine up there and uh, you can charge it as well as running your machine or running your sound right from it. You've also got the A2s for $199. And these are smaller speakers. I've got them set up in my living room, uh, and they actually fill uh, fill the room quite well with sound. They've got a lot of low end that, that you wouldn't expect out of a speaker this size, and they're small enough to fit on your desk without taking up too much room. Again, that's AudioEngineUSA.com. And our last tip comes from Stan. We had asked about Leopard's Firewall and said, gosh, there's got to be somebody out there that's making a better GUI for this. And Stan went out, went out and found something. He found an app called Waterroof, 
and uh, it's available uh, at uh, heynet. Han, han, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. It called Waterproof. It it uh, allows you to tweak and and have a whole lot more control over Leopard's water uh, water <laughs> waterproof uh, over fire. Leopard's firewall. Thank you, and uh, and so we'll put that link in the show notes for you too. And uh, and I think with that, John, I think we're uh, it's time to bring in the van. But you know, it's it's that firewall is still kind of infuriating. I'm, oh, I'm still at a loss. So, yeah, I mean, I, I took a quick look at this application, and th- this is uh, should be where if you had an advanced button, it would go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, Dave. I, I took oh, a very yeah. quick look, and I had one. It was like static routes or something, and I was like, oh, okay. So, um, I didn't go through it thoroughly, but it. it, it I mean, you can't get any less level of detail than what's there now. So, <laughs> yeah. so John, sorry, Apple. Sorry to bash them, but uh, now, go ahead. It, I, I understand why they why they did what they did, because it's so much easier for 90 percent of the users out there to manage. A fire, yeah. To manage a firewall based on what application I'm letting do what. Right. It's the it's the way a lot of Windows firewalls work. But. Frankly, you need to, yeah, you need to open it up and, and at least give people the same functionality they had in Tiger if that's what they're used to. Uh, crazy. Uh, you know, John, it, I'm a musician, right? And uh, as such, I grew up listening to uh, a, a lot of different stuff. And, and one of my favorite movies of all time, of course, is uh, Spinal Tap. And, and I had a Spinal Tap moment right here on this computer uh, <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm recording the show on. This is the G4. I have not upgraded it to Leopard yet. And, and as such, this one not only goes to, but went to 11. Uh, and, and I put 10.4.11 on here. And, uh, and so now I've got Safari 3 on this machine. I had not installed the beta on here because I like to keep this machine pretty clean for, uh, for doing the podcast. And it's also the machine Lisa works on during the week. Uh, it's, it's got all the security updates. Adds a couple of things about USB drive mounting and uh, and fixes a couple of widgets. Beyond that, there's there's some uh, minutia. But uh, the Safari three update, it's nice to see that release rolled for uh, for Tiger users as well. So, oh, why don't you just keep it at ten like everybody else? Oh, this is one better. This goes to eleven. <sighs> I guess we just had to do it. Uh, yeah. Next week will be a uh, a normal show, I think. And then the week after, I am actually on a boat in the middle of the Caribbean and, and will not be doing a podcast happily. Uh, not that I'm happy to not do the podcast. I'm just happier to be on vacation because it's been a long time in coming. Uh, I'll take care of it. I'll just talk to my special imaginary friend, Dave. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, John may, may have something special for you. Uh, Cashfly Hosting is the place that you downloaded this and, and all of the Mac Geek Gabs from. Uh, the podcast marketplace this month includes the A5 and A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, one free download from Audible.com if you click the right link, PDF pen from Smile on My Mac, and John's going to book his airfare through Harmon-Etravel.com. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Uh, go post iTunes comments. We like those. Everybody likes those. And as of mm-hmm. tomorrow, there should be a Backbeat Media uh, podcast section in iTunes that's uh, that's coming around. The whole, all the family, yeah, it'll all be coming together. That's what they tell me. So maybe by the time you see this, they'll it'll be out there. And uh, I think that's it, John. you have anything else for him? Nope. All right. Well, we'll get out of here. Got not. 206-666-GEEK. 
Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. MacGeekGab is the address to spike to spike Skype to. Made up.